Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's hard not to see this as the Robert's grand finale of the year where he gets to finish with two big cases with seven two majorities that show him up as a kind of political hero against Trump. Hi, and welcome to our special edition end of term amicus podcast. This is being taped literally moments after the ink is drying on the term's blockbuster decisions about the president's financial documents. The 2019 term melted a little past its usual end date and on into the second week of July. But here we are to talk about it. Fingers covered in ink still joining me to chew on this very, very last day uh, of the term are three of my very favorite court watchers, and they are Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, he's Dean and the Jesse H. Chopper Distinguished Professor of Law at Berkeley Law. Over his career, his courses have focused on constitutional law, First Amendment law, federal courts, criminal procedure. He has also frequently argued appellate cases, some at the Supreme Court. Any of you who are taking the bar probably are reliant on him in ways I cannot imagine. Erwin also helped us open the term back in the fall. Erwin, it's good to talk to you again. It's always great to be with you. And Zephyr Teachout is here. She is an associate professor of law at Fordham University, former candidate for governor, Congress and attorney general in New York, and a former death penalty lawyer. Her forthcoming book, Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money, will be published later this month. Zephyr, it's good to have you back. Oh, it's wonderful to be on. And I should note, Zephyr, you are the one who taught us all about emoluments uh, for the first time right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And of course, here we have Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts and the law and many, many things for us at Slate and largely has kept me sane this past week. Mark, welcome back. Thank you. Splendid to be here with these luminaries. And I think maybe the best place to start is these two big financial records cases, which have been hailed in the press as a triumph for the New York district attorney and a triumph for Congress and also a triumph for President Trump and also a triumph for Supreme Court supremacy. Everyone's a winner. I don't even know where to begin. It looks like the triumph is for John Roberts, but Zephyr, maybe you want to walk us through the New York subpoena case and we'll see if we can iron some of this out. Yeah, well, this uh, case came out of investigations by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. We don't know the full scope of the investigations, but into um, potential criminal activity. And in the course of those investigations, he requested tax returns and financial documents. And um, uh, Trump and his lawyers said no. Um, In today's decision, uh, basically, the, the Trump and his lawyers uh, said that they should have absolute immunity um, from these kinds of requests. And in today's 7-2 decision written by Justice Roberts, that really audacious claim is smacked down. However, the case is returned, is remanded for uh, Trump to continue to bite away at the particulars of the financial uh, requests. And uh, Erwin, if you don't mind, can you tell us about the congressional subpoenas? It's complicated. There's lots of committees. There's lots of financial institutions. But maybe just with an eye on how uh, the congressional case is both different and the same and how the result is both different and the same. The case is called Trump versus Mazars USA. It involves two congressional committees that subpoenaed financial records from companies that were doing business with President Trump. One was his accountant, Mazars, the other was a bank, Deutsche Bank. The DC Circuit ruled that these subpoenas should be enforced. It was a two to one decision. The Supreme Court today vacated and remanded. The Supreme Court said that Congress does have the ability to subpoena information from the president. As Zephyr said, here too, the court rejected any absolute presidential immunity. 
But Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the court, said that there has to be sensitivity to separation of powers issues. And he articulated a number of things that have to be considered. I would phrase it as there has to be a showing of special need for a congressional committee to be able to get information from the president. And this was then remanded back to the D.C. Circuit, probably to the district court, to apply the standard. I think that Trump versus Vance, the case that Zephyr is talking about, was much more clearly a victory for the district attorney in New York and a loss for President Trump. John Roberts there said explicitly, the law has the right to every person's evidence. I think the result in Trump versus Mazars was more mixed. Here, the court said there's no absolute immunity for the president, but the court also said, there's to be a heightened showing of need and separation of powers considerations must be taken account in order to get information from the president's accountants and bank. And Mark, I guess the follow-on question is, both of these, as they were coming down on Thursday, were being kind of processed in real time as, wow, these are whomping, whomping defeats for Donald Trump. And then with the half an hour, as we read and saw the remands that both uh, Zephyr and Irwin have described, we saw that there's a brand new balancing test uh, at the heart of uh, the congressional subpoena case. Nobody is going to see any financial documents from Donald Trump in the near future, certainly not before the 2020 election, maybe not for years. Is this one of those three-dimensional chess games where Roberts gives what looks like a huge defeat to Trump? while also giving him everything he wants? Uh, Maybe not everything he wants, but there's definitely at least a a little bit of chess or at least checkers going on here because uh, I think when we first read these cases, we thought, okay, well, the the court is rejecting Trump's arguments. This has to be good because Trump's arguments were awful. Um, But we then see that the court rejected these arguments because Trump had just asked for way too much, right? Trump's theory of these cases was utterly outlandish. Just this really disturbing vision of executive power and executive privilege, rendering him totally protected uh, from both state criminal investigations and congressional investigations. And I think John Roberts was very clear on drawing the line in the sand and saying the president is still a human, a person, a citizen. He is not above the law. He is not a king. And that part was good. And I love that part of both decisions. But then you get to the end and Roberts throws out these balancing tests and sends the cases back down and essentially gives the president some time to probably run down the clock, at least on the congressional subpoenas, through the November election, which means, as you said, no person, at least outside of a New York grand jury, is going to be able to see Trump's financial records before they go to vote in November. So, yes, checkers going on for sure. Um, the, The chief justice has enforced the separation of powers here and enforced real limits on the president's authority. But he's also handed Trump some significant short-term victories. And Zephyr, can you talk a little bit about now, essentially what happens is at least in Vance, in the New York grand jury case, this goes back to the district court, then Presumably, at some point, the grand jury uh, get the documents. Uh, It's worth flagging that that will happen in utter secrecy. Uh, Do you have any sense of what how this plays out? Or is this just years and years of litigation going forward in the New York grand jury case? Well, well, the speed of you know how, how the courts deal with it and how hard Vance pushes will really matter. And there are those of us who've been very frustrated with uh, Vance not acting quicker from the beginning of the presidency. I do think in the the long term, and we don't know how long that term will be, I'm I'm less hopeful than others that this will happen before November, but hopeful enough that I think we should be pushing, <laughs> that it's possible. But I do think that there is a real, um, that it is an incredibly important principle. And I agree that th- that case um, establishes an important principle and that Uh, we could see real criminal liability and we could see the president and others in jail. And I think that the uh, court uh, is very clear about that possibility is really important. 
Erwin, I was going to ask you a, a version of that question, which is, it's clear that, and I have to note um, somewhat flipply here, that this is the same John Roberts who last week told us he hates balancing tests, uh, at least in the June medical case, but he certainly has constructed this four-part test uh, uh, that I think going forward, Adam Schiff is going to have to meet a lot of extra hurdles. And I think I wanted to ask you, just as a purely sort of theoretical matter, Matter. What has he done to congressional oversight? It seems as though, I think at least in this case, it's fairly clear, as Zephyr says, that Congress can make some of the show, has already, in fact, made some of the showings uh, that the Chief Justice re- Requires. But I'm just wondering in the grand calibration of checks and balances and separation of powers, what do you see happen uh, going forward in terms of uh, congressional ability to get their hands on records? I think the Supreme Court has weakened the ability of Congress to get records. The D.C. Circuit said that Congress had made a sufficient showing that the subpoenas should be enforced. The Supreme Court has now vacated it and said, no, in order for a court to enforce a subpoena, the four-part test that you mentioned has to be met. I think that Congress can meet this here. I think, as you say, Congress has met this here, but it's still additional hurdles they have to overcome, and they have to overcome in these cases, but also in all future cases, to get information concerning the president. So I think the court here has weakened separation of powers and checks and balances. I actually want to say I totally agree with that, and I found that I've, I've read that section uh, as we record this, it, uh, it's only a few hours old, but this is a, uh, this is the opinion that came down on Thursday. I've read Robert's balancing test um, a handful of times, really trying to make sense of it. And um, when we think about power, it actually gives an enormous power to the judiciary <laughs> um, and takes away uh, congressional power. Um, uh, and uh, it's a, it's a remarkably brief test. The, the whole opinion, I haven't done a word count, but I think it's a really short opinion given the complicated issues that uh, arise. Um, in the test, even though I think it, I hope it's implied, the test does not talk about the important role of Congress, um, ex- does not explicitly reinform, reaffirm the important role of Congress um, as an oversight body um, acting to uh, 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 acting to reveal malfeasance in the executive branch, instead focuses more on uh, potential legislative action. I think that's that's somewhat disturbing. Um, and if you looked at the oral argument, um, you could see an enormous amount of discussion about uh, justices trying to figure out how do we do it? Uh, how can we have a test that doesn't require us to second guess congressional intent? <laughs> And I don't see this test, as Roberts laid out, actually solving that problem. In fact, it does suggest to me that it will involve the court um, taking power for itself and second-guessing congressional intent, and I find that incredibly disturbing. I think that's such a terrific point, and uh, I found it interesting that Roberts claimed to be standing by these precedents that gave Congress uh, a broad power to investigate through subpoenas. But at the same time, he kind of rewrote them. Because if you look at cases like Eastland, which is about congressional subpoenas, the court says its its chief goal is to keep the federal judiciary out of disputes between the executive branch and Congress, right? The, the court says, this is not our job. These are political disputes. We need to keep our, our heads out of this. And so we're just going to adopt this very deferential standard. And for the most part, courts are just going to be expected to kind of rubber stamp congressional subpoenas because it's one of Congress's powers. And now Roberts comes in and rewrites those cases like Eastland and says, well, actually, uh, you know, the real separation of powers problem here is between Congress and the president. Uh, the judiciary doesn't seem to count for him because the judiciary is just so wonderful and splendid so long as it's being led by John Roberts. How could it ever pose separation of power problems? And I think there's a, a lot of arrogance in that assumption that it, it poses a real separation of powers problem for Congress to be subpoenaing the president, but no apparent separation of powers problem for the judiciary to be intensely refereeing those disputes by really carefully, meticulously uh, going over all of Congress's justifications and deciding whether they're satisfactory. Factory for judges. It's such an interesting point. It, it actually 
reminds me of some of the language we got in Wednesday's Little Sisters case, where everybody is bemoaning the fact that this used to be worked out through accommodations, right? In that case, uh, it was who gets a religious exemption and who doesn't and how do we do accommodations. And there's a lot of hand-wringing about these used to be things that were worked out, which is exactly what we've been hearing all along about in these uh, presidential records cases, is that uh, these things used to be worked out uh, by the parties, and now everybody's bad children, and they all have to go sit in the naughty chair, uh, and the court will referee it. So there is a little bit of a sense uh, that the court is trying to take this posture mark of, look, we're the adult in the room. You know, we wanted everybody to work things out. Nobody is playing nicely, so now we have to step in. And that seems to dovetail really nicely with, A, these principles of judicial supremacy that the court loves, but also with just the rhetoric swirling around that everybody's just being childish and someone needs to be the adult. Erwin, are you, are you, I'm looking at your face and I'm seeing you maybe disagree. I think there's a real difference between the two cases concerning subpoena in that regard. Trump versus Vance was not of that sort at all. It was clear and unequivocal that the grand jury has the right to every person's evidence. The president has no special exceptions from that. The president can raise defenses that anybody else can raise, but no more than that. I think it's the congressional subpoena case where the court tried to strike a compromise between the president's absolute immunity position and Congress's, the president gets no immunity, and they came up with this balancing test. And I think there's a key difference between those two cases. And that's why the chief justice in the one case is so clear in Vance, where he's like dismissing, bing, 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 presidential humiliation. The president is too busy. That's an easy, easy uh, thing for him to bat back. I think the congressional case is messier in part because uh, the interests are are blurrier. I wonder if we could talk for one minute um, about Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I mean, here are the two Trump appointees who... While they don't completely sign on uh, with Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, certainly sign on uh, with the result. I think they would have been a little bit less deferential. But what does it mean, I guess, the optics of having Trump's two appointees uh, not side with him must be painful for him. But beyond that, can anyone talk a little bit about the light between uh, there's not a ton of light even between the dissenters uh, and the majority, but between the dissenters, uh, the the concurrences in the majority today? I would begin by saying it's important to note these cases weren't unanimous. United States versus Nixon in 1974 was unanimous. Clinton versus Jones was not unanimous. On the other hand, I'm thankful they're not 5-4. I think that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would want to give much more protection or some more protection, at least, to the president than Chief Justice Roberts' opinion does. And certainly by comparison to Justice Thomas, who would give total protection to the president. Mark, your thoughts on Thomas and Alito and what, what's animating their dissents? Yeah, I mean, Thomas and Alito are so predictable here. I, they're both very much saying this is presidential harassment. They might as well have tweeted it in all caps with a bunch of exclamation points, right? Uh, and then Thomas adopts this very wacky, limited theory of congressional subpoena power, basically saying it it almost doesn't exist. Um, Alito does his uh, super aggrieved performance about how these politicized prosecutors and House committees are just going to go after the president nonstop and, and stop him from exercising his constitutional duties. I am more interested, as I think you are, in the daylight between Robert's majority and the the Kavanaugh-Gorsuch concurrence in in the Vance case. And I I do think there's a lot of daylight there, because I think that both Roberts and Kavanaugh agree that Trump's argument is is ridiculous, that the president does not have absolute immunity from uh, a state criminal subpoena. But Roberts then follows up with, there might 
sometimes occasionally be a reason why a president can avoid these subpoenas. We can't really think of it, but we'll let the lower court just kind of suss it out to make sure we've got all our bases covered. And Kavanaugh, by contrast, says, I actually think there are a lot of reasons why a president uh, could still duck a state subpoena, even though he doesn't have absolute immunity. He still has this, this duty to perform his constitutional functions. And so I want this lower court to spend a lot of time carefully thinking through whether Trump can basically devise an alternate excuse to avoid Cy Vance's subpoena. And so I, I agree it's terrific that, that both decisions were not five to four, but I think in some ways Vance was five to four because the majority took a much harder line against Trump's uh, privilege from this, this subpoena than did the concurrences from both of Trump's appointees. I think that's right. And I, I just want to underline, I just think it's it's really tempting to just lump these cases together because they both involve discovery of financial records. But as Erwin pointed out early on, they're really fundamentally different cases. Um, and they both have to do with um, a tension between different sorts of power, but really different kinds of tension. And um, I found the, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the Vance case then far more comforting. And the Mazars case really, I, I just keep coming back to things that are troubling. It. Um, it has a vision of politics. Robert's vision of politics in it is hard for me to square with Robert's vision of politics elsewhere. Dahlia, you were talking about it as he's sort of treating it as the, the, the uh, judiciary taking care of these little children. But here in, in Mazars, he's really worried about institutions using their power to gain relative power over other institutions. In other areas, like in Crawford and election law, uh, Roberts and others um, uh, in the court take as a, as for granted that people with power will use that power to try to enhance it, and you shouldn't second guess that. But that's what politics is, is this people uh, seeking power, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't judge that or second guess it. And I'm trying to understand what his uh, vision of what what Congress members are supposed to be here. Um, and I do think that that a little bit of that monarchism that you see in the Vance um, concurrence shows up in uh, just sort of the seeds of monarchism show up again in the Mazars um, uh, majority. Um, and as a matter of politics, I, I know many other people have said this, but and, and you guys are closer court watchers than I am. But it, it's hard not to see this as the Robert's grand finale of the year where he gets to finish with two big cases with seven two majorities that show him up as a kind of political hero against Trump. And I, I do tend to see um, uh, uh, Roberts as a political actor in that way. And uh, that this feels very uh, much like a dance with him uh, coming in for the final um, uh, for the final performance. Um, and what that does for him is it reaffirms the legitimacy of the court. And I think that there, um, there are many legitimate questions about the court's, um, uh, 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 the court's role. And by ending this way, it ends with a chorus of judicial legitimacy as against Trump's illegitimacy. It's such a good point, Zephyr, and it's worth uh, reminding folks that when we heard oral argument uh, at least in the Mazars case, the amount of contempt evinced for congressional committees and congressional investigations. I mean, it was really almost baked in that Congress is doing something illegitimate and the showing would have to be, but from the courts, not just uh, Trump's lawyers, but from, you know, members of the Supreme Court that I think you're right, Zephyr, to hone in on this idea that politics is being recast as something really different. Different, uh, and that doesn't quite escape uh, even you know today's opinion. I, I wonder, Zephyr, while I, I have you, one of the things that I've been thinking throughout the year is that even if we, the public were to see these documents, even if Mazars were to unspool it all tomorrow and and Deutsche Bank and all of it were to be seen, uh, whether it would have mattered. I mean, I, I always had the sense that if we couldn't quite understand the Mueller report, how are we going to wrap our heads around shell companies and unbelievably complex, I mean, millions and millions of dollars were spent to make these documents look legitimate. And maybe this was all a bit of a snipe hunt. 
you're the corruption person. You tell me what 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 would it have moved the needle to see this before November? Two things. One is we certainly I'm I, I think uh, we should all be humble in our punditry, <laughs> and uh, and I I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I can't promise that it would have. Um, but I also yeah. believe everything matters and everything matters in ways that we don't know. And um, I, I, I continue to find it incredibly disturbing that we don't know the way that foreign um, money may be influencing this presidency. And it's um, a, a daily tragedy. And there's a daily question mark next to every trade and military decision we're making. Um, and it is absolutely the public's right to know that. So I can imagine a world in which it can make a difference. Um, and not just with Trump, but with other uh, uh, other races to say, no, We when you actually know, when you just don't say foreign, but you actually can follow the money in a more easy narrative way that it, that it can make a difference. And I, and I'm never going to stop saying that we need, we need to know that information. Um, it's absolutely uh, fundamental to our right as um, um, members of this political community. Can I say the obvious? Donald Trump has fought so hard to keep this information secret. I've got to believe there's a reason he's doing that, which then caused me to do this effort. If it's revealed, it might have something quite important. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history. And what a period we're living through right now specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, I want to turn now, if we might, to two of the other cases that came down earlier in the week. On Wednesday, uh, we had one that had to do with how religious schools can determine which of their teachers is a minister, and the other that is a follow-on case to a long line of cases that have to do with uh, those who do not want to afford contraception coverage to their workers. This goes back to Hobby Lobby uh, and the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, Both of these cases prove to be not surprising, uh, wins for religious liberty claims, uh, seven to two decisions in both cases that bolstered the rights of uh, religious employers in one case and religious schools in the other case as against claims by their employees. So in some sense, it does raise the question, even though I should add, these cases did not get the press that, say, June Medical or the financial documents cases got. But both of these, I think, raise at least the specter of religious freedom and religious dissenters winnowing away at protections that are afforded by statute or by the Constitution, uh, that there is a way in which religious liberty is becoming something of a Pac-Man that is going to eat up the rights that are won on other fronts. Erwin, can you walk us through the cases? The first of the cases 
was the Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Baruch. And I actually think, practically speaking, this is going to be the more important of the two cases. What's involved here is whether or not teachers in religious schools are protected by employment discrimination law. Less than a decade ago, the Supreme Court said that a religious institution can't be held liable for the choices it makes to still be its ministers. But these cases involved elementary school teachers who weren't ministers of the faith. In fact, it was even disputed how much they were teaching religious material. And the Supreme Court said that there cannot be liability of religious schools for the choice it makes who will be the teachers. That then means that any religious school can discriminate with impunity on the basis of race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. I've always believed that free exercise of religion shouldn't give a right to hurt others. Free exercise of religion shouldn't give a right to discriminate. We're to put in the language of constitutional law, stopping discrimination should be seen as a compelling government interest. 30 years ago, the Supreme Court said religion shouldn't get exemptions from general laws. Now the Supreme Court has given religious institutions exemptions from those important laws, those that prohibit discrimination. The other case, the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania case, involves an administrative law question not a constitutional question, and it involved whether the Trump administration could expand the exception from the contraceptive mandate. The contraceptive mandate was trying to make sure that as much as possible, women employees would have insurance coverage with regard to contraceptives. The Trump administration broadly expanded that exception by saying that anyone who has a religious objection or a conscience objection to contraception can refuse to provide such contraceptive coverage to women employees. And the Supreme Court said that that was a permissible action within the statute. But I here would point to Justice Kagan's concurrence where she said, well, it could still be challenged as arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedures Act. The case is going to go back on remand. So I think this is an issue that's still to be litigated and will ultimately come back to the Supreme Court. But to put the two cases together, along with one from a week ago, a case coming out of Montana, I think one of the things where the conservatives are very much united and sometimes get Bayou and Kagan to go along is expanding the protections of free exercise religion and decreasing, or I'd say obliterating the wall that separates church and state. And it's worth noting, I think, Irwin, that Justice Kagan does that thing in her concurrence where she literally gives a blueprint, right? Here's how to go back and win it uh, when you challenge it again. But, Mark, this leads me to you and at least to Bostock uh, because I think there are real questions now about whether – uh, religious dissenters, uh, religious free exercise claims are going to make it really hard for some of the big, big wins uh, to really be big wins if, as Irwin says, the idea of free exercise is becoming this great kind of Pac-Man that is chewing away at fundamental rights that are given in other contexts. Yeah, I mean, what what John Roberts giveth, John Roberts taketh away. Basically, just shortly after a terrific decision in Bostock where the court ruled that the Civil Rights Act uh, protects uh, gay, bisexual, transgender employees from discrimination, uh, the, the court turns around and says, but if those LGBTQ employees happen to be working for a religious institution, including a Catholic school, and even if they have trivial religious duties, and, and the, the teachers in the cases that the court just decided really did have trivial religious duties, joining the class in a, in a kind of pro forma daily prayer, uh, they lose all protections, not only federal protections, but state protections. And uh, I, I think it means that a whole group of people who suddenly gained rights uh, to, to work uh, in their own identities and to come out at work and not face discrimination suddenly had that taken away from them. There was like a glorious two-week period where they could work without discrimination and the court came back in and said, actually, if your employer says they're doing it because of Jesus, then you got to go. And I think it's very informative uh, and helpful to place the Espinoza case that Erwin was talking about next to this ministerial exception case because in Espinoza, the court ruled that once a state starts funding private schools, it has 
has to also fund private religious schools. And in the ministerial exception case, it says that basically those private religious schools get to hire and fire on the basis of all of these protected traits that American law uh, has has protected for, for decades. And so we've reached this awful point where a majority of states are simultaneously going to be forced to fund private religious education and then rendered incapable of enforcing their own civil rights laws against those schools that they are funding. If this is not an example of a court that only cares about the free exercise of some and ignores the rights of others, I don't know what is. The court just focuses so narrowly on the the very powerful groups that bring these claims that are represented by wealthy, powerful law firms like Alliance Defending Freedom and ignores all of the others who lose with these decisions. The taxpayers in Montana who don't want to fund religious exercise that goes against their own beliefs. Uh, The many thousands of Catholic school teachers who are just trying to make a living, who teach algebra and didn't realize that in the process of teaching the Pythagorean theorem, they were actually conveying the message of the Holy Spirit. Um, These cases are perverse. I think it's absolutely worth reading Justice Sotomayor's dissent in in both of them. Um, They represent, I agree with Erwin, a just total abolition of the wall separating church and state. And it's frightening that they did not draw headlines because they were... uh, really kind of unthinkable rulings uh, as recently as two decades ago. This court has moved very far to the right when it comes to separation of church and state. And, Can I just and, quickly, go ahead, Erwin. Yep. Oh, I just want to quickly agree with Mark and also point to a real tension between two cases that he's alluding to. In the Espinoza's Montana Department of Revenue, what the Supreme Court's saying is you can't discriminate against religious institutions. Religious institutions have to be treated the same as secular institutions. But then in the case that came down yesterday, the Guadalupe case, the Supreme Court is saying, oh, no, but you have to discriminate in favor of religious institutions, that religious institutions get an exception from general laws that no other institutions do. I think the court got it exactly backwards because what the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is meant to be about. And I would just add, because we haven't said it, but it's worth saying, uh, and Mark is talking about all these invisible people in these cases, but it's worth saying, you know, the two teachers that were brought suit in these Guadalupe cases, uh, one uh, was says she was fired for having breast cancer. She's now deceased. The suit was brought by her surviving spouse. Uh, the other was bringing an age discrimination uh, claim. None of this somehow gets surfaced uh, in the conversation about how they are ministers, uh, including, you know, a really, really deep reverence for uh, the the school's ability to choose who their ministers are. And it leads me to the other invisible people, which is the the gravamen of Justice Ginsburg's uh, dissent in uh, the Little Sisters case, which is how did we get away from balancing all the other third-party interests? These women who wanted to have birth control, who were guaranteed contraception as part of the contraceptive mandate, their interests are completely vaporized somehow in the Little Sisters decision. And I think one of the things that's maddening to Justice Ginsburg, just to go back to what Mark said, is how is it that we write people out of the equation uh, of what are supposed to be careful balancing of interests. So all the interests that don't matter in this case, they disappear, are actually <laughs> things that are so dear, so valued that they are enshrined in a legal regime and it's being detonated from the inside out. I, I wonder if we could talk for a brief moment. Mark is talking about these dissents and here we have Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing these blistering dissents and I a little bit miss that Elena Kagan from Town of Greece, the one who used to write in the religion cases so powerfully. Maybe, Erwin, you could speak to this, um, because you mentioned these are seven to two cases. Uh, We've got Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer time and again in these religion cases, uh, voting with the five conservatives. And I wonder if, I mean, part of me wants to ask a tactical question, which is, are they just doing deals with a capital D, or is something else happening that I'm missing? I think something else is happening. Justice Breyer has never been a champion for the wall that separates church and state. You might remember 15 years ago, a case, Van Orden versus Perry, 
that upheld the Ten Commandments monument at the Texas State Capitol. It was five to four that it didn't violate the established clause, with Breyer joining the conservatives. We've alluded to the Montana case from a week ago, but that was based on a decision from three years ago, Trinity Lutheran of Columbia, Missouri versus Comer, that was a seven to two decision that had violated free exercise to deny money for surfacing playgrounds to religious schools. Kagan sometimes has been with the liberals in the religion cases. There was Town of Greece versus Galloway several years ago that involved having Christian clergy deliver prayers for town meetings. And that was 5-4 with Kagan writing a very strong dissent. But we find across the board in the religion cases is Sotomayor and Ginsburg are in dissent, but sometimes Breyer and Kagan are with the conservatives. Think back to just a year ago, the 45-foot cross case, the case of American Legion versus American Human Association. There, the court said putting a large cross on public property didn't violate the Establishment Clause. It, too, was seven to two. So I think what you have is five conservatives who would completely eliminate the wall separating church and state. Five conservatives want to provide much more protection with regard to religion under the Free Exercise Clause. Sometimes Kagan and Breyer will go along with them. Consistently, Ginsburg and Sotomayor are dissenting, and they want what's been the traditional law that Mark refers to a wall separating church and state and keeping religion from being able to inflict injury on others. One thing that it's a it's a theory that I've had in the corruption space, but I wonder if it applies here, is that there's something really troubling when there's uh, too many academics on the court <laughs> um, and that the understanding of power and power dynamics is thinner um, in both Breyer and Kagan than it has been with Ginsburg and Sotomayor, and that Sotomayor in particular brings this kind of Brandeisian specificity to her amazing dissents, like let's get the facts on the ground and tell the stories of what is uh, what is happening. And uh, I, it, I'm throwing a theory out there, but I but I do worry about the the um, the power of abstract argument and the uh, the dominance of abstraction in some of these um, cases. Mark, are you are you more transactional? Do you feel like they're just doing deals, or or are you uh, of the view that there's, uh, as Irwin says, that there is a real uh, profound distinction in point of view between the Briar Kagan wing and the Sotomayor Ginsburg wing? I think there is definitely a real distinction, uh, a divide among the four more liberal justices there. Um, but I also think there's probably some degree of at least strategizing, if not outright horse trading. Uh, we know from Joan Biskupic's terrific uh, biography of the Chief Justice that Breyer and Kagan did engage in some horse trading with him to uphold the individual mandate in exchange for letting states opt out of Medicaid expansion. We know that the justices are not above these kind of compromises uh, that might go against their own ideologies and beliefs. And I think it's quite possible that in a decision like Trinity Lutheran, Kagan went along with the conservative majority because she thought, well, this is at least defensible and plausible. And it allowed her to kind of uh, come out when the court dramatically expanded that holding and say, hey, I was part of that other decision, but I am not going to go along with its massive expansion here. And Justice Kagan actually said that on the bench. She said during the, the arguments in the Montana case, I was one of the seven in Trinity Lutheran. And I think she loves being able to say that. I voted with the conservatives. I was one of them. I'm not some crazy uh, anti-religion separationist here. You know, I just want everybody to go along and get along, but this goes too far even for me. And so I think Kagan cares a lot about uh, presenting herself as a moderate on these particular issues as somebody who really does get the other side and thus as someone who can come out and really spank the other side hard when it goes too far in this direction and just bulldozes the, the wall separating church and state. Can we talk for one little minute about McGirt? Because uh, it's another case that's going to fly under the radar, I fear, and it is really a, quite an astounding uh, tour de force by uh, Justice Gorsuch, who seems to have a real deep understanding and affinity for uh, Native American uh, tribal land rights. Can somebody talk us through it for one little minute? Irwin? Sure. What's involved here is eastern Oklahoma, 
in fact, a very large part of Eastern Oklahoma. And it's traditionally been tribal land. It's covered by a treaty with a tribe. And the question is whether or not a tribal member can be prosecuted in state court. In this case, it was a prosecution for murder or whether pursuant to a federal statute and the treaty, the prosecution has to be in federal court. And the Supreme Court five to four said, in light of the treaty and the federal statute, the prosecution has to be in federal court. This has enormous implications, at least for Eastern Oklahoma, because it's gonna then mean that tribal members are gonna have to be prosecuted in federal court for all of their crimes. I think the interesting question is gonna be, where else are there treaties like this? So under the federal statute, the prosecutions are going to have to be in federal court, not state court. The only thing I'd add here is Congress could change that federal statute and then return these cases to state court. And that's a point that Justice Gorsuch made in his opinion as well. Um, the, Justice Gorsuch's concluding paragraph in McGirt says, the federal government promised the creek a reservation in perpetuity. Over time, Congress has diminished that reservation. It is sometimes restricted and other times expanded the tribe's authority, but Congress has never withdrawn the promised reservation. As a result, many of the arguments before us today follow a sadly familiar pattern. Yes, promises were made, but the price of keeping them has become too great, so now we should just cast a blind eye. We reject that thinking. If Congress wishes to withdraw its promises, it must say so. Unlawful acts performed long enough and with sufficient vigor are never enough to amend the law. To hold otherwise would be to elevate the most brazen and long-standing injustices over the law, both rewarding wrong and failing those in the right. Holy cow! I think um, a lot of uh, my friends who do uh, Indian law would say thank God for that statement. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, Mark, do you want to talk for a second about? Gorsuch and his, um, why it is that, you know, this is a soft, soft, soft spot for him. I don't know if I have an answer to why, but it's certainly a a pattern we've seen. And in fact, when Justice Gorsuch was nominated, uh, when he was just a judge to the Supreme Court, some of his biggest boosters were tribes because they looked at his record on the Tenth Circuit and saw that he had a very strong record on tribal rights and respecting reservations and holding the government to its promise and treaties with with Indian tribes. Um, And I think they, they, they made a good bet there because Justice Gorsuch has consistently joined with the four liberals on tribal cases, uh, this case included. This decision was no surprise, and I'm not entirely sure why. Perhaps it's because he's a Westerner, and he is very much a self-styled Westerner, right? We know that Gorsuch loves to present himself as uh, a man of the West in all ways, uh, and with great authenticity. Uh, But he writes about tribal rights the way that Justice Kennedy wrote about gay rights, or the way that Justice Ginsburg writes about reproductive rights. Um, He obviously has extraordinary sympathy for these tribes, particularly those that have been screwed over by the government. And I think this kind of sits at the heart of his textualist jurisprudence where he gets to read these treaties that the government made and say, hey, we see that the the U.S. government has been violating these treaties for 100 plus years. We get that the government wants to keep doing that, but you guys signed a contract and you need to stick to your word. And that is a very powerful idea that has been unfortunately foreign to the Supreme Court for many years. I don't know that we've had uh, a five justice majority as sympathetic to tribal rights as we have today ever in the history of the Supreme Court. So let's do a a final quickie speed round. Uh, The 2019 Supreme Court term, Erwin, you and I kicked it off together on this show uh, for my purposes, uh, probably didn't expect it to end uh, with winter coats behind me in the closet, Uh, probably didn't (laughs) expect telephonic arguments, including Justice Ginsburg from the hospital bed, Um, but probably I at least didn't expect the story of the term to be, it sure wasn't a 5-4 route, uh, conservatives over liberals. I wonder if each of you wants to go around for a minute and tell me, in your view, uh, what the enduring story of this really, really completely fraught and fascinating but unpredictable term will be. What what are the history books going to write? Mark, you want to start? 
Uh, I would say, as we have written, you know, John Roberts kept the Supreme Court from becoming an election issue, right? Uh, I think he really took the wind out of the sails of the Democratic interest in packing the court by adding seats. And I think he stood up to Donald Trump in a lot of important ways, as in the, the DACA case, without actually shifting the law to the left. Uh, John Roberts is masterful at making both sides feel like they won something, and he threaded the needle brilliantly this entire term. Zephyr, what's your read on uh, what are we going to tell our great-grandchildren about this uh, historic term? Well, I have a 21-month-old, so (laughs) there's some lacuna in my (laughs) my court watching in the last few months uh, for those uh, parents during the pandemic. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but I would largely agree with um, what Mark was just saying about, um, I think that uh, uh, maybe it makes me a little less happy. I'm not sure where you were coming down, but that that Roberts is a, a deeply political and deeply skilled political um, actor. And I think that this term in many ways was about shoring up um, his power and the legitimacy of the institution of the court. Erwin, you brought us into this term. <laughs> you can assure us out. What's your view of, what's your theory of the case? What what did we learn uh, this term about Roberts and the Supreme Court that he helms? I think we saw it truly is the John Roberts Court. Until a couple of years ago, it was the Anthony Kennedy Court. He was the swing justice. John Roberts is now the swing justice. Prior to this term, John Roberts had never voted to strike down any abortion law, but he was the fifth vote to strike down the Louisiana law. Prior to this term, he had never voted in favor of gay and lesbian rights. He had dissented in the two marriage equality cases. This term, he was in the majority in saying that Title VII protects gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals from discrimination. Prior to this term, he had pretty consistently been ruling in favor of the Trump administration. Think of Trump versus Hawaii two years ago that upheld the travel ban. This term, he ruled against the Trump administration in the DACA case, and overall ruled against the Trump administration and Donald Trump in the subpoena cases. I think John Roberts has occupied not just the center seat, but as prominent a role as any chief justice we've seen, maybe at least since Earl Warren. That, I think, says it all. I think we're going to be talking about John Roberts uh, and who he is and what he is uh, for a very, very long time. Dean Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean and Jesse H. Choper, Distinguished Professor of Law at Berkeley Law School. And over his career, he has focused on constitutional First Amendment law, federal courts, criminal procedure. Uh, He's also argued cases uh, at the appellate courts and at the Supreme Court. Zephyr Teachout is an associate professor of law at Fordham University, former candidate for governor, Congress and attorney general in New York, former death penalty lawyer, and her forthcoming book, Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money will be published later this month. And of course, Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law, state courts, state Supreme Courts, LGBTQ issues, and so much more for us at Slate. I wish the three of you a peaceful, justice retirement-free. I'm terrified <laughs> we're going to get a retirement, y'all. No retirements. I wish you a peaceful summer, a healthy summer, and I thank you so, so much uh, for ushering the term out with me. Thanks so much, Dahlia. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And that is a wrap for this Please God Do Not Let There Be Any Supreme Court Retirements edition of Amicus. Uh, Thank you so much for listening today and always, and thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your thoughts. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your letters. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. We'll be back with you soon. In the meantime, thank you for listening and take good care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. 
Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.